and trucks and shit going oh yeah man there's like a full thunderstorm going on there's like hail and winds are like 28 miles an hour like it's not good times <laughs> so i'm like just waiting for stuff to pass by outside there we go <clears throat> all right hey there and welcome we're gonna start off as we always do and thank everybody out there for checking out this episode of those people a podcast with people about people as usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so happy to have you here. Those People is a show with people, about people, where we explore all the labels that other people give us and the ones that we give ourselves. So every episode we sit down with a different guest, we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S-words, really. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved. So if you love it, we'd love you to go and go tell a friend. If you hate it, we hate you and please kindly shut the fuck up forever. I'm just kidding about that last part, but if you do hate the show for real, please shoot me a note at mitchgaines at gmail.com. Tell me what you hated, and we'll try and do a little bit better next time. As always, I also want to take a quick second to remind everybody out there who does love the show, or just some of the people we've had on the show, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we are currently on include our sponsor Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my personal favorite, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be an Apple listener and a Podchaser user and you like the show, it mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but again, only if you like the show. It was five stars go a long way, but you can say the hate takes for Twitter, where again, you can find me at Mitch Gaines, that's Gaines with a Y, because I'm a little bit gay, G-A-Y-N-S. I'm joined today on the show by, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce this right, I have a long history of fucking up people's names on this show, Shania Chowdhury? How'd I do? Okay, Shania, all right, Sean the Bougie, all right, uh, <laughs> Shania Chowdhury is a former U.S. Marine's, uh, also, a candidate for New York's 5th Congressional Districts in Queen, right next door to uh, fellow Those People guest Mel Gargarian. He's a former AOC staffer. He cut his teeth in politics as a legislative aide in the New York State Assembly. He has a progressive agenda that ranges from support for the Green New Deal to a repeal of the Jones Act to provide relief to Puerto Rico. So I'm excited to learn more about Shane's story, get my pronunciation right, hopefully before the end of this episode. Uh, and of course, also discuss kind of what New York 6 is experiencing during the time of coronavirus and what his experience in that congressional district has led uh, to his... I guess, new birth in politics. So without much further ado, welcome to the show, Shane. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mitch. I uh, appreciate it. I love the intro, by the way. So, um, well, I guess we'll get into it. So, <laughs> awesome. uh, again, again, my, my name is uh, Shania Chowdhury, as Mitch has mentioned, but I go by Sean for short. And I come from a Bangladeshi Muslim family. We live in South Jamaica, Queens, which is on the southernmost border of the borough of Queens it is the most diverse, uh, you know, Queens is known as the most diverse place in the world, but where I live particularly, it is the most diverse part of, of the borough. So you'll find everyone from Africa, from the Indian Caribbean, from South Asia, you name it. And, you know, we have, we tend to have the best food around here. So, <laughs> you know, it's true. It's a fact. So, you know, I, I really like, um, do feel like this is a community where it's, a place that should be recognized that 
really could truly represent America. And, you know, growing up, um, you know, my, both my parents, they immigrated here from Bangladesh shortly after Liberation War. And if many people don't know what the Bangladesh Liberation War was about, um, you know, in, in summary, it's about East Pakistan versus West Pakistan. And uh, East Pakistan is present in Bangladesh. West Pakistan had a stronghold on um, East Pakistan because they wanted to implement their culture, their, uh, you know, uh, their, the language and all that. And um, eventually, East Pakistan wanted to break free, be independent, uh, start a new nation. And my father, he, you know, fled from West to the East. And uh, three million people died. It was it's a, a forgotten genocide. And um, eventually, in 1971, Bangladesh got its independence. And uh, just about maybe two, three weeks ago, we recognized its 49th year of independence. So shortly after this, uh, you know, they, they both came here to, to the U.S. Uh, my father came here undocumentedly, and, you know, he had to struggle uh, in terms of like, trying to get his uh, a green card here, like uh, his visa. He, like, he had to pay, uh, you know, he had to pay money underneath the table just to get a, a green card to stay here. So, you know, he went through a lot to just be able to come to this country that we call home to achieve the American dream like many immigrant families try to achieve for and, uh, you know, I was born in Queens, New York, and I thought that I would have a regular childhood, a regular upbringing, I would grow up in one place, have the same friends for all my life, go to a nice college, uh, get a nice fancy job, and that'll be it. But um, that was not the case. You know, I learned a lot, and I think that um, bouncing around a lot growing up, going from New York to uh, living in New Jersey for some time, even living in Detroit, I really got to experience a lot of different, um, you know, different people, different um, aspects of life, different people from different levels of socioeconomic um, incomes. And, you know, going up in especially in poor communities, especially poor communities of color, um, you know, I've always learned that we are always dealt the extra hand, you know, we always dealt with the shittiest hand on, on, the, on the card deck. So one of the the things I I tend to like to kick off the podcast by asking people is exactly that, actually. It's kind of like where they're from and what childhood is like there. You you mentioned uh, your parents kind of obviously have a... I was going to say an atraditional uh, American story, but I guess it's actually very traditional and uh, very common. It's just one that isn't recognized kind of in media and in kind of portrayals of the American story, uh, but kind of a, oh, yeah. a, a very typical uh, American immigrant story. And then you you end up in Queens, and that's clearly where you call home. That's clearly where you've come back to and where, where you're hoping to represent. But you kind of bounce around a lot as a kid. So where where were you living when? Like, how old were you when you were in Detroit? How yeah, old were you for man. years in New York? Where, where were we? Well, <laughs> let me tell you, Mitch, I think that, after the age of five, no, let me, let me take that back. After the age of two, uh, I bounced around almost every two to three years in a new place, new location. So uh, even though I was born in Queens, I was living in the Bronx at the time. Uh, my family was living in the South Bronx, and we had moved back to Queens. And a couple years later, we moved to New Jersey. Um, and from living in Southern Jersey, I was living around um, you know, in the suburbs of Atlantic City. So bounced around a lot over there. Um, every two years, a new home, new neighborhood, and my parents, uh, you know, my mother, my mother, she was like cleaning hotel rooms for a living. My father was waiting tables um, at these restaurants and these casinos, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they were just trying to save up money, right? Not trying to save up money to really get us out of these two-bedroom apartments where it's rat and coat uh, cockroach infested, and try to really 
get that nice middle class home with the white picket fence and everything. And eventually we did that. Uh, but it was like really bad timing because once, as soon as we were able to do that, uh, 9-11 had happened. And, uh, <laughs> bad timing yeah, a brown guy really trying to buy a house in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and predominantly white neighborhood too. It's like, all right, we finally made it. But um, as soon Moving as that happened. Up. <laughs> mm-hmm. they push us right down the steps <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, uh, you know, after, so so is after that seven. how you guys then end up in Detroit it's like 9-11 happens and you're like well fuck being in you know the New York City metro area we've got enough money saved we can go buy a house in Detroit for a quarter of the price we were going to get one in Jersey oh yeah yeah absolutely like it came to the point eventually um, a couple years after 9-11 we had we had some family up in Detroit you know it was Detroit in itself is like, it's either you're black or you're South Asian. So we're like, all right, we'll feel like we're at home. <laughs> and we went there. The, the cost of living was really, really dirt cheap. Um, but, you know, Detroit in itself, it's just like any other community of color had its own issues, right? Like it didn't have the resources it needed for public education. Um, you know, unemployment rates weren't all that great. Um, sorry, employment rates weren't all that great. So there were a lot of issues that were going on. Um so let me, let me ask you, that, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious kind of as a, as a young person there, uh, I, I hope you don't take offense to this, but looking at you, I, I recognize you as a, as a class of people that I, I find myself to be a part of, uh, that Alex Wagner, the MSNBC host, describes as future faces and, you know, people who are racially ambiguous, these mixed race people or people of like various brownnesses that like white people don't know how to categorize. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you mentioned Detroit is predominantly South Asian and black and like I guess, it, is it kind of like a, a, a melted community there? Is there kind of specific South Asian communities and black communities and sort of like, which were you able to kind of identify and assimilate into and which, like, did you have trouble like finding acceptance in like black communities or within South uh, Asian communities coming from like, you know, a, a more cosmopolitan setting in New York? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. Uh, I've never really felt accepted within my own South Asian community, to be honest. Mm. Uh, I was felt more accepted within the black community, the Latino community, just because even even leading up to Detroit, um, you know, growing up in Atlantic City, I always assimilated with uh, my black friends, my Latino friends, and I've always embraced their culture, their families. Like, my friends' families would welcome me with open arms, and their mothers would, like, cook me, you know, then I would sleep over, right, and then, like, cook me breakfast. So I always felt like that was, like, my home. You know, I always had a place of home. Um, I'm always very open culture. But when it came to, like, my own group of people, you know, come from Bangladesh, I, I always felt like I just wasn't accepted because I guess I was too Americanized in their eyes. And hmm. also, you know, I don't speak fluent Bengali. Like, I do speak um, an, an indigenous dialect from Bangladesh, uh, but it's, like, frowned upon uh, in terms of, like, you know, more elitist people in Bangladesh. So could you, could you respond like on that a little I, bit? Just cause like, I, listen, yeah. man, I, I'm a Northeastern kid from you know Boston who grew up around mostly white yeah. people and like a sprinkling of Brown people from various places. Like I find yeah. things like these fascinating. Cause like, so you speak a, an indigenous dialect of Bangladesh that you come to America mm-hmm. and essentially Bangladesh in immigrant communities in America frown upon that because it's mostly like wealthy elites who have been able to make the trek over here thus far. And there's like, kind right. of a, 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 a cultural gap between these two groups of within the Bangladesh American community? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, before Bang- so Bangladesh was a part of the Indian subcontinent, so there are many different Indian tribes 
um, you know, for centuries over there. And essentially what they found themselves is that once Bangladesh got its independence is that the most predominant language um, is called Shiddo. And that's the most predominant uh, spoken language in, in the nation of Bangladesh. So that pretty much uh, was part of the most, you know, ruling elitist class. So they have, you know, more money, they're well more educated. And uh, any other group of people that spoke a different dialect, um, you know, they had more, I guess, more of other, of, um, I guess you could say, I guess you could say different like uh, tribal ancestors that were different from the people who spoke this predominantly uh, specific language. Mm. So, you know, we had, like my people at least, so we come from Silet. Um, so, you know, we speak, we speak that language and we have more Aboriginal and European, um, you know, roots mm. uh, mixed in with our Indian roots. And that kind of, you know, gets left us on the side. So mm. anyone who's, you know, anyone else who is like has mixed blood, I guess you could say is like kind of frowned upon. We're like not pure bloods. You know, <laughs> if you look at, I'll just take a the Harry Potter reference, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know, you know, we're not pure bloods at all. So remember uh, who the hero turns yeah. out to be though. I said, remember who the heroes always turn out to be, though. It's all the mudbloods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, that's fascinating to me because it's something I probably talk too much about the show, my own experience, honestly. But I, uh, as somebody who's mixed race here in America, it's like there's this constant othering, right? Of like, you know, are you black? Are you white? Are you Latin? Are you brown? Or like, how do you identify? And, you know, that's a big reason I started this show is like, I'm constantly kind of in between identities where it's like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm as white as I am black, but like, don't try and tell that to anyone white in America. You know what I mean? Right. But then like, if right. I'd go try and be like outspokenly black, I'm just like another light skinned nigga who's mixed and like being too loud about it. You know what I <laughs> mean? And so it's like, yeah, th- no, there's no I real like place to be there. And it sounds like you, you know, yeah. your people kind of in a similar boat there where it's like, Hey, well, you've got one drop of English blood in you, and maybe an Aboriginal ancestor like four four generations ago. So, like, fuck you, you're not one of those. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, and like even even to this day, I so I used to be really light skinned as a, as a child, mm. but I was someone who like like to play outside of someone who was very active. So I got really dark over time. So now, like, I'm really really dark, and uh, you know, there's also a lot of colorism that goes on within my in, within my own group of people. And, uh, you know, I kind of like my, even like my, my relatives, like my aunties, uncles, they would be like, oh, you know, you're too dark. You're too black now. Like no one's going to want to marry you. And like, I should be like, yeah, it like really, really deflated my, my self-esteem, you know? Like I really started hated, uh, hating myself as a child just for being like dark, dark skin. And, um, you know, and, but then at the same time, I always found a place of home with people who were. Um, was just as dark as I was. And, you know, it made me appreciate over time, like, how beautiful, like, brown-skinned black people are, you know? And even to this day, like, especially living where I am now in, in public housing, like, people get me mixed up. If I, if I don't have my beard, so I used to have my beard. If I had a beard, people would think, like, I was black. And I'm like, thank you, but I'm not black. Uh, or, like, you know, and, like, I think that's a compliment, you know? And when I don't have my beard, like, people will mix me up as someone being like Guyanese or Trinidadian. So I always never, no one ever gets the first impression that I'm from Bangladesh. They always get the first impression that I'm like, you know, somebody else, which is cool with me. You know, like I've always liked to embrace uh, different cultures and other people's, you know, experiences and kind of like melt into my own. So this is, 
I imagine like I, I go through this a lot too, where it's like, you know, everybody I meet thinks I'm, you know, Dominican, Samoan, I, I get everything <laughs> under the fucking sun. Uh, and so it's, like, it's part of the reason I grew dreadlocks, honestly, was to be more identifiably black. And I'm, I'm planning on cutting mm. off my dreadlocks and, you know, and coming up here pretty soon. I want to have gray dreads. I'm getting there. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, depending on, you know, what your appearance is that day, like what you wear, what your facial hair is, what your hairstyle is, like which glasses you wear. It's like, you literally can transcend race, but only in so far as you can right. transcend it within not whiteness uh and i find that to be a a spectacular kind of limitation that's like okay so we all agree that you can't identify who i am or where i'm from to the point where i've i've now accepted and internalized like i shouldn't even like try and fight back about that and like make this like a prideful thing about where i'm from i i'm now just kind of into celebrating the the fact that i get to you know experience all these different cultures right exactly at the same time it's like okay but the one thing you're not allowed to experience (laughs) is like privilege and access Right. <laughs> wow, man. That's yeah, a, no, yeah. That's quite a mind fuck. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, yeah, it really is. So I, I guess you mentioned you kind of finding uh, that, that self-love, that self-confidence kind of within, you know, the, the black is beautiful movement for, for lack of a, a better phrase there. Uh, and I, I certainly had a, a similar experience where, you know, I grew up in a very white place. I, you know, my, I'm half white. My entire living family here is white. Uh, and so, I, you know, I was raised with, you know, an element of pride in my blackness, but not really any black examples to find pride in. Uh, and so as I've gotten older and seen, you know, whether that's an ad campaign or a celebrity or friends I've made or mentors, uh, finding like ways to be proud of like my own identity and, you know, be comfortable in my own skin. Uh, so when was that kind of like taking place for you? Is that something where, you know, at, at some point throughout childhood or is that something that comes like much later for you yeah actually it took a really really long time uh because i really didn't have a lot of uh, bangladeshi friends growing up and it wasn't until i really got more involved in activism and, and organizing that i really got to connect with other bangladeshi activists and organizers who were you know just as uh who share similar experiences but also are really just open-minded people real progressive people mm. who are you know, really empathetic towards people within our own community who just grew up differently. Um, and they kind of just made me feel like a part of their home, you know? So I, I've organized with Muslim for Progress. I've organized with uh, Bangladeshi Americans uh, Political for Progress. And, you know, it's a very diverse group of people, but, um, you know, majority of them are Bangladeshi, but they also come from different experiences, different socioeconomic classes, different uh, regions of the country. And, uh, you know, they kind of just accepted me for who I am. So I, I kind of like really am not honing into uh, my, I guess, my indigenous identity, I guess you can say at this point. <laughs> Uh, and I'm curious, uh, obviously you mentioned, obviously that comes kind of later. So how, how is like, how is life when you're younger, like with your family and everything? Are they like, Hey, like, why aren't you more Bangladeshi? Why are you hanging out with all these black kids? Like listening to rap music? <laughs> like, well, <laughs> like, how's that going? No, so, no, it wasn't even like that at all. I mean, like my, at the age of seven, it was like when I, my cousins, my cousins were like most, you know, so this is like the late nineties, early two thousands. I had cousins who were like into rap and they were like freestylers. So they're the ones who got me into uh, Illmatic, right? Like okay. that was my first exposure to hip hop. And when I, you know, that was the first thing that I really was just gravitated to. And it, it's like, it's a real, it's a really interesting dichotomy because it's like, you know, hip hop's black culture, but then it, at the same time, it's like when you grow up like, in the hood and the project is like also part of, you know, this other culture. And like, this is what I just was like always used to. This was like my known, this was like my world. And, you know, this is something I just like naturally embraced. And my, I guess my family kind of understood that. Um, my parents never questioned it because it's like, we, 
we constantly moved around in communities that were really diverse in terms of like you know communities of color. So they understood that I was going to have friends who were black or you know have friends who were like Puerto Ricans, um, and they were just like used to it. You know, they never questioned it, but they they tried to at a young age really try to get me to be more uh, culturally aware of our own, our own culture, but it just never really worked. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it never really worked because, as you know, as a kid, as you can imagine, you're spending most of your days in school, you know, mm-hmm. like you're going to school at seven o'clock, eight o'clock. You don't get home till like, what, three, two, three o'clock. And you come back home, do your work, play your friends, play for friends. And that was like my world. So I never really had time to really embrace, I guess, my own culture. And my parents didn't really have the time. Like, they were hardly ever around. I was, like, babysitting my own siblings at the age of eight. <laughs> you know, they had to work. So there was, like, never really a time to really learn more about my own history. Well, I, I guess I'd, I've always been curious about that with, uh, and again, like, I, I have a lot of phrases that I just, like, use in my own vernacular that I truly don't know if are offensive or not, so, like, please correct me if they are. No, uh, no not at all. Use it. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but I, I often, like, think about, like, the plight of, like, what I call single-digit minorities, where it's, like, you know, like Bangladeshi is what, like, you know, 1.2% of the population in America, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these, like, you know, you have white people, you have black people, you have Latin people, and then you have all these, like, 1% minorities that never yeah. really get properly <laughs> represented. And so, like, part right. of why I love hip-hop culture is, like, yeah, obviously it is, you know, primarily black culture, but it has really grown and diversified to be, like, this kind of multi-ethnic culture of all the, all the you know, the one to two percent minorities across the country, where it's like, you know, yeah. we have Bangladeshi rappers, and we have Pakistani, you know, breakdancers, and we have, like, right. film guys who are, you know, from Korea, and it's just like, you know, like, that's how hip-hop works now. It's a, a, an international genre, and the only thing it really truly kind of rejects is whiteness, uh, where it's like, you yeah. have to work pretty <laughs> fucking hard. I mean, we're, you know, plenty of white people making money in hip-hop, don't get me wrong, but, like, for you to get, like, accepted into the culture, it's a pretty high bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, that's, it's really interesting because uh, I'm not sure if you follow this Bengali rapper named Anik Khan. He's from Queens. Somebody just put me, it might have been your timeline who put me on him because, like, I just recently I heard of him. Yeah, yeah. He's actually he's pretty dope because he's someone who's been able to, I really like his, his, his artwork because, like, he really is able to infuse Bengali culture into, like, his, like, in a really trendy hip-hop music. And it's like, it's just accepted, right? But mm. when it comes to, like, white rappers, people are always just, like, having, like, this, you know, magnifying glass on them and just trying to, like, really dissect them. And, like, they're usually rejected. Like, white rappers are usually rejected when it comes to, like, unless, you know, if it's, like, another person of color who's a rapper, like, it's usually more embraced. I, uh, so it's, it's interesting. I, I found recently, probably in the last five or six years, is, like, mumble rap has exploded. And, like, I yeah. you know, this is not, not to knock any of the kids out there who are, you know, mumble rap fans, but, like, the, the lyrical content became harder to, uh, you know, make out and therefore less important. And it was more about, like, melody, flow, and then obviously beats, as it's always been. And I think that really opened the door for a lot of international rap artists, where it's like, I've gotten so accustomed to even an English language rap, not knowing what the fuck you're saying, <laughs> that now, like, listening yeah. to, you know, rap in another language. You know, I was listening to, like, Israeli rap the other day, and I was like, oh, this is hard. Like, I'm fucking with this shit. I have no idea what's going on. This might just be, like, some shit I shouldn't be listening to at all. Like, the FBI might be banging in my door uh <laughs> but yeah that's just tough uh you mentioned obviously you know your parents work a lot you, you know i i don't know any working class family without two parents working at least a job and a half each uh and so like you're home taking care of your siblings and everything how many siblings do you have and are you the oldest or youngest where are you kind of fit in to the the sibling trajectory here 
Yeah, so I'm the eldest of three. I have, so I'm going to be 28, actually, in about, uh, let's see, 21 days. Oh, wow. And right. Happy early. Yeah, so it's, thank you. And then, um, and then I have a younger brother who is 24, and I have a younger sister who is 19. So I am the eldest of three. And being the eldest, uh, you know, there's this responsibility of setting the example because we are, you know, the smartest the best looking in the family, so there's always more pressure. <laughs> comes, with, comes, with, comes with the territory. I, I dispute this yeah. as a younger brother, but, like, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you definitely have big, big brother energy, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> and are they, are, they all, are they all in New York now? I'd imagine, given the ages, your sister's probably in school somewhere. Yeah, so she actually goes to my alma mater. I went to John Jay College. Now she's a uh, sophomore at John Jay College. Nice. And my brother, he is... Uh, key so uh you you mentioned obviously your sister and you both went to john jay uh is that kind of how you ended up on the military path or how do we because i i I, I read in the (laughs) bio that you're a former u.s marine but you know you're sounds like you have a pretty normal normal childhood up to date so like when you make the jump be like hey you know what i want to do for the next four years no it wasn't wasn't really clear cut you know that's just for like the perception on the website (laughs) when you break it down when you break it down it, it gets it's a lot more messier, um, man. So coming out of high school, so I was actually, uh, I played football in high school and I was actually working on trying to get a, a B1 scholarship to Boston University. And uh, I was on my way of getting there. And Wait, so did, did you I, say to Boston so, University? Buffalo, Buffalo. Buffalo, okay, okay. Yeah. So I had uh, screwed up the opportunity by letting my grades drop, but it was just a difficult time uh, with my family financially, so I had to start working, and uh, that kind of took a toll. Uh, you know, on me as like a seventeen, eighteen year old. Yeah, um, English really class becomes a lot less important when you're sleeping like three hours yeah. a week, and, and like, yeah. <laughs> you know. And like at the same time, like I had to. So school pretty much came last to everything because like it was like all right, I'm at home working. Also, was like in a serious relationship too at the time. It was like my first serious relationship, and then I had football. So I'm like, all right, this. To me, everything else was priority school where it came last because I thought I could just get by because, you know, I was a good student overall. Mm. But I uh, I guess I was, you know, obviously young and naive and uh, I let everything really get out of hand. And uh, shortly after high school, I, I was working retail and I, you know, I didn't know what to do because I pretty much got rejected to all my top colleges and ended up going to community college nearby, but I still, still wasn't focused. So um, I'm like, all right, well, I need to get out of the city and to like make money to help my family out um, and help myself out. So I ended up just like going to a recruiter station one day and they're kind of shocked because they're, they're so used to going out in the streets and collecting kids off, off the block <laughs> and, you know, getting to go off boot camp. But I went in there. I'm like, listen, like I, I want to go. And within three months, I was I was off. So, who who do who do you talk to before you went? Like, did you like did you run that by like your family or like your siblings, your parents, or anything? Or was that like a a you and your girl decision? Uh, no, <laughs> that was another factor. I my girlfriend at the time she didn't want me to, to join the military. I, uh, I can imagine they, they very rarely yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, West Point was like one of my other top choices. She didn't want me to go, and um, you know, after we had broken up, I'm like, oh well, I have no one to tell me who's gonna hold me back anymore. So. Uh, I decided, you know, I was just kind of free at, the, at this moment, and I never really consulted with anybody. I, I just thought I had family in the military too, so 
my my cousin, my, these are my first cousins. He, uh, you know, they were one of them was a captain in the army. The other one was a captain in the air force. So I'm like, all right, well, I want to be the best motherfucker that I could be in, in the family. Um, I'm like, let me join the Marines. So <laughs> only, only one way to uh, one up the army and the air force, right? Exactly. You've got to go Marines. Exactly. I had to. And it wasn't until after I, I had signed up that, you know, the whole family found out. My parents kind of were just like so used to me doing things independently because, um, you know, as long as they, as they are, they've never really been a part of like just like my, my everyday life. Mm. So they kind of were just like, used to me doing things on my own and they just kind of accepted it. Like it's just like another part of my life that I'm going to be doing. So, and how um, old were you, you know, at this point? I was 18 at this point. Okay, so you, you were fresh out of high school. All right. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, yeah. where did you have, like, other friends who joined up with you? Like, were they, like, high school buddies of yours? You're like, hey, like, you know, I, I'm thinking about doing this. Like, this may not be a bad idea. Or, like, you saw somebody go do it. You know, they were in for, like, six months a year. You're like, that seems like good money and shit. Like, I might as well go try that out. Or is it just like, hey, like, you know, this, this looks like the best option to get out of here and just do something different? Yeah, so actually, uh, myself, so – there was uh, a good friend of mine who I played football with in high school. He actually graduated a year before me, and we ended up enlisting at the same time. But we kind of lost touch um, for you know for a couple of years up until we both enlisted. And we found out through Facebook, oh, we're going through boot camp at the same time, you know. So we kind of went together at the same time, and we were actually the first two, um, I guess you know, you know, first two alumni coming out of our high school to enlist in the military. No shit. So. Yeah, so it was pretty pretty cool, and you know, he's still one of my best friends to this day. Well, uh, one one of the questions I always usually ask towards the end of this segment, I, I guess I'll ask now. Then uh, I typically ask who the most famous person from your high school is, and if not, who from your high school you want to shout out? Who is your buddy so that we can give him the proper credit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my friend Dominic Tiguez, he's uh, actually part of the NYPD right now, but he's a great guy, great dad. Um, you know, I you know what a good guy really you got to be to get shouted out as an NYC cop it. by an NYC Democrat <laughs> running for Congress? That's a lot. That takes a lot. That takes a lot out of me. <laughs> like, you, you must be the best fucking guy on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> like he's, he's a goofball. He's a natural goofball. Like, uh, I've known him for a while now, so he's someone who's just a good-hearted person. Awesome. Well, I, I, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I, I'm happy that you joined up, and uh, I'm curious how you came out the other side. There's a, a couple other questions I want to ask you here before we get to the back half of the interview. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, Dominic, and I – well, actually, let me back up here because this is a question I typically ask at the beginning of the interview I should ask before I ask this, which is that I ask everybody for what we like to call uh, a conversational safe word. So the way it works is very similar to a sexual safe word. Anytime I ask you a question you don't want to answer, you feel uncomfortable with, things are getting weird, you just say that safe word, we'll move right along. Uh, so before I ask you this question, what is your conversational safe word? Oop. Oop. Oop? Okay. It's like oop over there, yeah. <laughs> that, that works. Oops works. Uh, and so I, I like to ask everybody, uh, and so I, the reason, you know, I want to give you an out there, because if your best friend in high school is now a cop, this might be a bad question to ask. But what was, like, your first vice or bad habit? Because you mentioned, you know, you seem like a hardworking kid. You're doing all right in school. You're about to get a football scholarship. Uh, and then, you know, you start working 24-7 and, like, things start slipping at school and everything. I imagine, at least speaking from my own personal experience, you pick up a vice or two somewhere along the way in that. Uh, <laughs> so what was sort of, like, your first bad habit that you developed? Oh, my first bad habit, you know, I guess I was just too caught up in, um, in my love life. 
<laughs> That's a delicate way to say I was a player in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't a player, but I uh, always had my attention on, on girls. You know, I was like a, a teenager. So that, that was like only, literally the only thing on, on my mind 24-7 was like girls. So I, I think that if I, uh, you know, if I was more, if I could tell my 17-year-old self right now to be more focused and, you know, well, uh, my typical follow-up to that question is, who introduced you to that bad habit? But it sounds like it was a plethora of people, so I'll, I'll allow them to go unnamed for now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all my friends. I'm, I'm calling all of them. I'm definitely calling my friends. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to jump back in here in the second half and talk a little bit more about your military background and obviously the, the ongoing political campaign and your plans to run for New York's 5th Congressional District. You're right back for I Am One of Those People after the break. I am joined here by Shanyat. Did I get it right? Shanyat. Yeah, I got it right. All right, sweet. Hey, I'm not even going to try the second name this time around because I got the first name right, so I'm going to leave it right there. We're joined by Shanyat, who is running for New York's 5th Congressional District. Uh, and so we want to talk to him a little bit, kind of how he got uh, got to the point in his life where he became a politician. Uh, it's kind of a, a weird leap for a lot of people. I've obviously talked to a lot of them here over the course of this show, uh, but everybody's journey is sort of different. So I guess I want to start there and ask kind of how, how did you decide to get involved in politics and eventually you know, be the politician yourself, not just somebody working in politics? Yeah, I mean, it started out at a really young age. My, my father, he's, uh, he's a socialist, and so he is someone who's always watching these. I watch the news with him, man. He was also doing work in like city, and my first taste of just like politics was when uh, thousands of families like like ours and throughout the city and like city were on the brink of losing their jobs and their homes due to a financial crisis. And unfortunately, uh, we all lost our homes, we all lost our jobs, and that really forced us to move back to New York. Um, so you know, really that experience kind of just uh, ignited uh, me to really just stay more aware of what was going on. And, um, you know, coming back from the Marines, uh, even for that experience, uh, you know, I never got a chance to deploy, but um, I definitely learned a lot from those who did, um, learning about how we spend trillions of dollars and we have accomplished nothing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these wars were based on lies. So um, that and just uh, what really got me involved uh, firsthand with my community was after Hurricane Sandy. It uh, really hit my district really, really hard. Um, you know, I went out there as a first responder in the Rockaways to help clean up 
uh, you know, homes and debris for people and really help them get back on their feet. So I organized my climate change and I started uh, getting more into organizing within my own community. I, uh, I was going to uh, New York State Assembly. That's when I first got my opportunity. Uh, I started out as an intern and became a legislative aide. And uh, while I was up there, it was definitely an eye-opener because we really get to see it. If you're not there, you really, you know, your everyday person really doesn't have an understanding of how politics works, even your local politics. And when I was out there as an intern, I'm like, wow, this is how, like, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of shit that happens. You know, there's a lot of like, backstab when it comes to uh, other members of the legislators passing bills, and some people would take other people's bills. Like, people would, like, really get fucked over. Um, so, you know. Good to see how like, the sausage right, well, is made. This is a it's a fucked up system, you know? So I was someone who, you know, originally I thought I was just going to be doing scheduling, but I went from scheduling to taking meetings with, with activists and lobbying groups and also researching legislation. So when I came back from Albany, I, uh, you know, it was perfect timing. I got involved with AOC, got involved with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, oddly enough, we have, we have like a, a, real, a mutual friend. And our mutual friend, who was one of my best friends, she told me that uh, she told me about Alexandria about like almost a year ago when she was just thinking about running for office because they were working together at the restaurant that they were working at. <laughs> and she was like, hey, she was like, hey, Sean, like, you know, I think that you might be interested in helping out my friend here. She's thinking about running for Congress. And at the time, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll think about it, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, I saw her in the Young Turks one time. And, you know, it was someone who, when I really heard her speak for the first time, someone who really resonated with me because not just her age, but just her messaging, uh, in general, it was just like pretty spot on, you know, a big bring supporter. So I uh, wasn't until after 2016 that I wanted to get really more involved um, in trying to see what kind of changes I could make. But I never thought about running for office. But, you know, working with AOC um, kind of inspired me. And then actually what really did it for me was I went out to Tijuana in December 2018. I was organizing to really help the sound seekers coming from Central South America uh, you know, come into the U.S. safely. And uh, when I told my opponent what was going on, he kind of just, like, uh, undermined my position on this, uh, considering how he represents the most adverse place in the world. And that's when they decided to run for office. So, so it really yeah. was kind of a, a confluence of events leading, you know, you mentioned from your, your dad's old kind of socialist roots that he brought over with him all the way through the financial crisis, your military experience, and kind of what you saw. Uh, weirdly, I, I talked to a lot of vets about this, but often I find people who didn't deploy uh, have almost a, a more uh, acutely aware kind of political sense of what's happening there within the military because you're just seeing it like you're, you're not so close to it that you're like experiencing it on the human level. You're just seeing the toll of it come back to you every day. It's like, I'm just, yeah. like, here doing my job, and then all of a sudden, like, you see a dude, like, you were at Basic with six months ago or whatever, and it's like, this dude comes back, like, you know, he's fucked in the head or has, like, some crazy opioid addiction yeah. now, or, you know, like, all, oh, not even these physical I, I injuries, like, the toll. I've I, I lost friends to suicide after they have come back, you know? Like, it's just a, a shitty position that we push so many people in because, you know, a lot of people who enlist in the military are not people who, who grew up. Or like, oh, you know, I want to be in the military one day. No, these are like, you're, you know, these are kids. Literally, you know, because of how uh, archaic our system is, like we spend almost $6 trillion in wars. But it's like, where do we get these kids from? They usually get kids from like black and brown communities because 
we're the ones that could be exploited for their profits. Mm-hmm. And it's like people go off in the military because it provides uh, security in a way, right? It provides economic security, it provides housing, education opportunities, health insurance. So when you get those things, it's like it's a way out. You know, that's that's the reason why I enlisted was because it was a way out for me for my uh, from the situation I was in financially. And um, and unfortunately for me, I, I didn't get to deploy, but I really got to see a lot of my friends who came back who are were just never the same anymore. I yeah, man. Like I, I obviously as a, a layman, I, it's one of those things I can only kind of like speculate and appreciate from a distance. But one of the things I, I spoke to a friend of mine uh, a couple of years back after he got back from I think it was his second or third deployment, and like he came home and he was you know twenty three years old and he was coming home to you know a new car like you know fifty eight thousand dollars in the bank or whatever he saved <laughs> over. And it's like that is like life changing shit if you tell that to an eighteen year old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. You mean exactly. to tell me I can come home and like I I will have a place to stay and my family will respect me and I'll have thirty thousand dollars in the bank and no debt? Like mm-hmm. uh, hell, I know a lot of people who are in their mid forties right now who would take that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so it's it, it becomes this really kind of dangerously alluring thing. And then on top of that, we need a reason to keep them going, right? And so then we just find new conquests to send them on and new things to pay them for. Right. Uh, and it's kind of like this ever-evolving cycle. But one of the other things you mentioned there, I, I guess the, the military actually had quite a hand in the relief of, but uh, you kind of were on the other side of, is obviously the the post-Sandy experience in New York. And a lot of my New York friends, specifically in, in Brooklyn, Queens, Rockway, kind of that area of New York where it was hardest hit, uh, really kind of point to that even more so than, you know, some from 9-11, depending on how young they were then, or the financial crisis, depending on how old they were then, but Hurricane Sandy being a real kind of, like, defining political moment for them, where they saw the toll of what climate change or Mother Nature or what the world was going to bring to us, uh, and kind of really radicalized them to realize that something major needed to happen. And you mentioned that's kind of what triggered you to start organizing around climate change. What is... I, I, yeah, I, I don't want you to have to go through you know, every bullet point of your po- entire platform here, but like broadly, what is kind of your, your climate vision that you're trying to bring to Congress here? Because that's yeah, one of the areas so, I feel like we don't have like a lot of actual leadership on. We just have a lot of people saying like, "Hey, we should do something about climate," which like, you know, I, I agree, <laughs> but I'm not a fucking scientist. I have no idea. Like, what do I? What, what should we be doing exactly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we, you know, according to like world scientists, we don't really have that much time to we start making radical moves in terms of addressing climate change. So I support Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal plan, which essentially will eliminate carbon emissions by 100%. It will, you know, when we build public housing for the homeless, we're going to restore it in, into a 21st century uh, environmentally uh, and sustainable economy. It's also talking about transitioning uh, fossil fuel drops, people who would like to be miners and like in the rural area of America but also tra- help them transition into more eco-friendly jobs where we can build solar panel and houses and, you know, buildings throughout the country. So, and, you know, when we talk, look at Green New Deal, we really need to break it down more and, you know, what, it, what we need to do and how to make sure that places like New York 5, where there is a transportation desert, where there is a food desert, um, a lot of these communities, you know, they rely on public transportation. We rely on cars to get around places. So for me, what I want to do in addition to the Green New Deal is I want to nationalize public transportation um, and create public transportation in, in communities of color so it'll be a lot more accessible uh, to get to, you know, to our work and schools and where we need to go. So we don't need necessarily to rely on cars as often. I also want to make sure that we have uh, community, in the community um, arms. Uh, one thing I've been working with here in South Jamaica 
I, I work with the South Jamaica Resident uh, Committee, and we build community farms. So we give out fresh fruits and, and produce, uh, you know, during the season to all our neighbors. Um, if we had more of that, we don't necessarily have to go out of our way to go to supermarkets that are in wealthier neighborhoods, because often than not, we would have to go out of our way to do that. And supermarkets that we have in our own neighborhoods, uh, we're left with leftovers. And these are fruits and, and other stuff that are about to expire for the next day. So, uh, you know, if we had just more community investment, you know, the money is there. And as we're seeing right now during this time of the coronavirus, we're seeing that the money is there because corporations, Wall Street, like they're getting trillions of dollars every day out of nowhere now. Um, so it's like, you know, it's really about prioritizing the working people. So, you know, Green New Deal is really going to shape up how we look forward uh, towards the future and like how we're going to let the next generation um, really decide how they're going to want to live going forward because it's going to impact them eventually. So one, one of the things I, I guess I look at the Green New Deal and I, I look at the supporters of the Green New Deal and I hear a lot about it. And I, one of the things that I, I guess as a, as a marketing guy and uh, coming from that world that really stands out to me is like, it all sounds good, but the minute I ask somebody to kind of get into the weeds of it, there is a lot there. Uh, and so, like, I really appreciate it when people like yourself, like, you mentioned nationalizing public transit, right? It's like, you know, as an elected official, I support the Green New Deal. But within the Green New Deal, here is, like, the specific thing I'm going to champion, and that is, like, access to public transportation. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. I wish more supporters of the Green New Deal did a better job kind of extrapolating singular items from it and highlighting how that's part of the Green New Deal, right? Like, if you're a renewable housing advocate, like, make sure that you're highlighting how how building affordable housing with renewable materials and renewable energy impacts our global like climate initiatives and tie all that together and vice versa. Because I, I feel like so often we hear about the Green New Deal and the pushback both from, you know, the you know the establishment Democrats and also obviously the, the, the right is sort of like, well, you want all these things and all these policies and this is going to cost too much and it's all um, one big moonshot. It's like, it's not one big moonshot. It's actually like two, 200 really small ideas. It's, you know, it's building yeah. a farm <laughs> in your community, right? It's, you know, it's extending yeah. a train line to a new neighborhood. It's like, it's a lot of really small ideas. It's not like, it's not one big thing. Uh, and so I guess I, I wonder just kind of from the messaging standpoint, what is sort of outside of the Green New Deal? What is sort of the, the one big thing you're hoping to get done, you know, in, in your first two years there? Because obviously, you know, I, I go through I go through your issues pages. There's two pages of issues. You're, you're first, first hopefully, uh, a first-term congressman. You have two years in office. I assume you're not going to get through all those. Uh, so what is kind of like the, the top priority for you? Yeah, uh, my other priority is addressing the housing crisis that we have. New York Five has some of the highest rates of home foreclosures in the country. So, you know, when we look at this issue of the housing crisis, it's not just also national, national issue, but also hyperlocal. So my opponent, my opponent, Greg Rumiksi, is the chair of the local Queens Democratic Party. But the party is operated by three real estate attorneys. Um, and what these, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's like, why do we have real estate attorneys uh, representing a, a political club in Queens? It doesn't make sense, you know? So uh, what, what they essentially do is, um, they take working families to court. These are people who can't afford to keep their homes or businesses, and they foreclose on their property. And once they foreclose on it, uh, Gregory Meeks' donors, you know, any, any politician who has donors who are part of big banks and private equity firms, they come into working-class neighborhoods like New York 5, flip the properties, put them back on their market for twice the rate that it was, 
And then that's how gentrification happens, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that's how gentrification happens. So, you know, I, I know that a lot of people like to, you know, shit on, you know, white yippee people from like the Midwest coming over to New York. And, you know, essentially it's not their fault. It's we need to look at the players who enable the system. And it's, you know, people who are in office, people who have money from these big banks and private equity firms who are coming into our neighborhood, who are changing the, the environment, you know, economically, um, making it making it difficult for everyday people like us to live here anymore. So we need to address that head on. So when I look at the federal homes guarantee, I'm a big proponent for that. And essentially what it does is it does three things. One, we are looking to build 12 million public housing units for you know people who are on the verge of losing their home or are or are homeless. And you know, I mentioned earlier the Green New Deal, we want to transition it into the Green New Deal economy. So making sure they have solar panels, making sure that the walls and pipes are, you know, they don't have mold or lead or lead uh, in infrastructure. We want to make sure that we address racist redlining laws as well. Uh, make sure that homes belong to homeowners and not big banks. And then lastly, you know, uh, you know, aside from paying reparations that are needed, we also need to, uh, um, what's the last thing I was going to say? But we also need to, uh, again, I think I, I think I pretty much touched upon it, uh, <laughs> the renewal deal economy. So, yeah, that's pretty much it, the federal homes guarantee. The federal homes guarantee essentially just brings the power back to homeowners and renters and out of, you know, out of the heads of powerful people who are just looking to profit here off the system. Um, and then my other uh, thing that, that I'm big putting for is for the criminal justice system. Um, you know, while we throw this terminology a lot, around a lot, criminal justice reform, but what does it mean, right? Uh, criminal justice reform, when we look at it, it's just a cyclical system. You know, the same people, two out of, I mean, two out of three people who come out of jail, out of prison, are rearrested and thrown back into the system within the first three years after release. It doesn't make sense. The same people that are being targeted it's usually black people, trans people, queer people, uh, sex workers. These are all people who are targeted by the system. And, you know, reforming it isn't enough. You know, we need to really decriminalize things like sex work. We need to decriminalize, uh, you know, marijuana and legalize it. But also make sure that people who are arrested for, you know, things like marijuana possession or, or low-level offenses are the first ones who benefit off the new industry. Um, so, you know, I kind of want to look at it in that. It's really humanized that poor people because these are not – People that are looking to uh, destroy people, you know, you know, cause harm on anybody. These are people who are like they're trying to survive. You know, most people who commit like low-level crimes uh, in our country are doing it out of survival. And I'm telling you that firsthand, like someone who like lives in the projects, like people commit crimes out of survival. And if we just set them up in the opportunity where they have things like healthcare, education, access to you know to jobs, um, we could definitely see a trend of, of crime decreasing. I think. And that's what everyone wants at the end of the day. It's like no one wants to commit crime. But when a system is created in a way where people are going to, like, are on the verge of just not knowing, you know, what to do if they want to need, if they need to steal money from a bank <laughs> or if they're going to starve for a week, you know, it's, it's a tough option to deal with. Um, uh, I think one of the things you really hit on there that uh, I, I want to resonate with everyone out there is just like this idea of it's beyond reform. We, what we need to do is decriminalize the act of poverty. You know what I mean? Like, it, you, it, there's this kind of rhetoric out there that I hear a lot on the right about, like, well, you know, if a criminal wants to commit a crime, he's going to commit a crime, right? Like, that's the kind of the, the working knowledge for, like, a lot of our criminal justice system. And it's like, that's simply untrue. Yeah. Like, I, I know a lot of criminals. I'm friends with a lot of criminals. I've lived next door to yeah. a lot of criminals. No criminal I know wants to commit a crime. 
<laughs> literally, <laughs> literally not one of them. You know what I mean? It's like they all committed yeah. crimes because they'd ran out of options and needed ways to like get things they needed, whether that was like healthcare or food or medicine or fucking uh, some form of comfort and therapy that they can't afford elsewhere. Like, you know, these are all things that people commit crimes for. Uh, I think totally. that ties back in nicely. Obviously, you mentioned the the housing guarantee kind of being. The, the big thing that you w- want to kind of be your driving force of your first term here, uh, a, a, a national housing guarantee is obviously a, a, a big sell. Like you said, it's 12 million units. There's a lot more that goes into that, but kind of making them green units and all that. Uh, I, I guess I want to touch on kind of the, the immediate future of housing. Uh, one of the things I, I spoke with somebody in New York about recently, and you mentioned this kind of about kind of the, the local players in the system of gentrification, right? Uh, and currently during the age of coronavirus, we're seeing a lot of calls for rent strikes and rent freezes and rent suspensions uh, and uh, a lot of animosity towards the landlord class. And right, rightly so in a lot of ways, because a lot of these places are, like you said, they, you come in, you get the gentrified, you know, seven unit, 12 unit, 20 unit building, and it's owned by, you know, Sovereign Bank or TD or Chase or whoever. Uh, okay. But a lot of other kind of like pre-gentrification landlords are, you know, these immigrant like success stories who come over and, you know, after yeah. a generation opened a business and used that business to buy a house. And that house became a three family after they converted it and they live in one and rent out the others. You know, I had a, I had a place here in Boston, my last place before I moved in with my girlfriend. It was a guy who moved over here from China. Like he started a business here. He bought this place. He rents out the bottom two floors so they can have a, a third floor apartment for his family to come visit when they come over from China, like two, three times a year. And it's like, what's not to like support about that right and so i guess where where does the landlord class stop and the tyrant class begin in your eyes because that seems to be kind of the crux of the issue for me it's like when are you when are you being a, a responsible landlord and like providing a service by caring for this property and like keeping you know maintaining it and keeping it up and everything and when are you you know exploiting people by just you know profiteering off land ownership yeah and i think that landlords do have an obligation during this time, you know, who, again, you know, like you've mentioned, many of them do understand what the struggle is like. So I think that there needs to be a sense of responsibility and understanding that, you know, they are relying on, on tenants who don't have jobs at the moment, who do not have money to pay, to pay them, you know? <laughs> so it's like, we need to, no better time than now to really stand in solidarity together. And, you know, tell the government, tell the system, like, hey, fuck you, like, you know, we're not going to, you know, really undermine and abuse, um, you know, people who are, you know, that, you know, we're renting our, our, our homes to because it's just, it's just not right. It's not morally right. It just doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that landlords do have such a responsibility to really understand the situation that a lot of their tenants are in. It's just, it's not possible. You know, it's just not feasibly possible at the moment or morally possible because, you know, it's, I, I think that it's, it's no one's fault that, you know, we're in this situation that we're in right now. The U.S. has known about this for months. We've known about the coronavirus coming for months from, since December. But, you know, Trump decided to not do anything about it. A lot, you know, we have a lot of politicians who invested in stocks ahead of time. Uh, so the people who knew about it really didn't do anything to prevent it. And I, I don't think that working people uh, shouldn't be the ones to, you know, to be suffering from all of this. So I think that, again, landlords have some responsibility to really extend a solidarity with, with every working class tenants that, uh, you know, there is. 
that sounds spot on to me. I uh, I guess I want to while we're on the topic of coronavirus and kind of you know obviously living through it here. Uh, I want to give you a, a quick moment to talk about kind of what you guys have been doing both with the campaign and kind of with your movement uh, to kind of help people through this time because I know you've been you know delivering essential supplies, you've been trying to coordinate like meal deliveries. You've obviously suspended all your door knocking campaigns, but you still have people out there who are able to be able to kind of like volunteer and help the cause. So what are some of the things that you guys are working on to be able to kind of help New York Five during this time? Yeah, so we've moved all of our work uh, digitally. So because we can't knock on doors, we are making phone calls, mm-hmm. um, checking up on, on our neighbors and our community members, making sure that they're okay, and seeing if they do need anything. And we have a small core of volunteers, uh, including myself, that, you know, that are healthy, that have cars, that have gloves and masks, to be able to go out there and, you know, buy essentials and get items that people need. Um, and a lot of people that we're bringing stuff over to are, you know, elderly people, disabled people, uh, or just poor people. Some people do need financial assistance uh, in regards to groceries and other items. So, um, I'm, you know, after this session, like, I'm going out there today <laughs> to bring more stuff to families. Um, and so I think that in a time like this, that politics, you know, even though this is, rooted in politics, we kind of do need to put that aside because people are not really thinking about the election coming ahead. People are really thinking about how can we survive the next 24, 48 hours. Um, so, you know, right now we're staying in solidarity for our communities and we want, um, you know, I guess, you know, we are accepting still, do- we are still accepting donations, but this, every donation from March until April are going towards our, our mutual aid effort within our campaign. So um, if, if anyone wants to even donate Five, ten, twenty dollars, or even donate items. Our all our our information will be on our website on www.sean2020.com. Um, we have a COVID uh, page on the website. I have all the information about what you can do to even help out remotely. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm super pumped that you're doing that. I, I Obviously, I need to kick my girlfriend out of her apartment so I could record this interview today. So what she's doing is actually uh, delivering a, a bunch of hand-sewn masks that we made for people. Uh, you know, some of our oh, friends wow. who are you know, in the restaurant industry or people who we know who are like nurses and, you know, people who are in vulnerable populations and everything. So it's like, you know, every, everybody's out here kind of trying to do their little part. And it's really inspiring to see people like yourself who... I, I, you know, I, I guess aren't quite officially you know, elected leaders yet, but soon to be. And, you know, the, the aspiring class uh, kind of leading by example, getting out there and kind of doing the right thing rather than, you know, making a speech or telling, you know, the world how we're all going to overcome this together while people die, you know, literally down the street from them. Uh, I, yeah. I, I guess that, that sounds like a harsh transition, but let me... Uh, I, I do want to ask you, as I ask everybody kind of during the season, is, you know, you mentioned your opposition previously. Uh, you know, it's kind of a establishment figure he's you know the head of the queen's dmc he's a real you know surrounded himself by like real estate attorneys and bankers uh who kind of is your opposition like who is gregory meeks and like why are you running against them because you mentioned that when you mentioned kind of how you got into politics was like approaching him with what you think your community needed and his uh, uh, i guess almost like mocking of (laughs) what you were trying to propose to him and so kind of what was that moment like and like what why do you feel like you needed to run against him specifically yeah, so, you know, as, as someone who's a product of public education, public housing, I, I see that, and coming up in a working-class community, that this is not being represented by everyday people that the system needs a working-class representation. And I'm just sick and tired of working people continuously being left outside this process. Um, so we do need people who do come from our experiences to represent working-class uh, values, working-class representation. That's, that's what I'm trying to champion. 
So my point of view makes he's been in office for 21 years, I think, 20, 22 years. And uh, he accepts $2 million per cycle from Wall Street executives from big banks. And we see him time and time again really represent their needs, bailing them out uh, in times of financial crisis, but not really bailing out working families, even to this day. Like, he wants to make sure that if small business owners can't afford to keep their businesses, then he'll take it, and his joints will, you know, take up the property. Um, and, you know, he's someone who also knows Mike Bloomberg for president, uh, who authored a stop and frisk, you know? And as someone who, you know, grew up Muslim, um, I experienced firsthand what it's like being stopped and frisk. So for, for him to even consider, uh, you know, he, he did endorse him, but the impact of what Dr. Frist did for a district like New York 5, which was the epicenter in Queens for Stop and Frist, um, it, it was just really disheartening because, you know, black people, brown people were being surveillance and thrown in jail like it was no one else, else's business. Uh, and no one was questioned about it for years. Mm. And, and it still goes on, uh, but, you know, at the time, at the peak of it, um, it was just too extreme and it hurt a lot of families, it broke up a lot of families, left many people poor. And um, it, it just goes to show you that, um, you know, that it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter where, you know, what part of the country you're from, even if you come from the most liberal uh, part of the country or more conservative, but both Democrats and Republicans do play through the same system. So I uh, decided to take this, you know, this guy on after I came back from my Tijuana trip. And I called him out on Twitter, too, by the way. <laughs> I called him out on Twitter, and he replied. Uh, so I have receipts. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, Let he's me... just someone who is a, 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 you know, a corporate Democrat that just really isn't meeting the needs of the working people here. One of the things I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong independent. I've voted purple tickets pretty much every election I've been able to vote in. Uh, so one of the things I always find myself curious to ask people, and, you know, the easy answer here is obviously, you know, the, the support of a, a working party, right? But, like, mm-hmm. what is the draw of, I guess, registering and running as a Democrat and sharing a party with somebody who, like, it sounds like you have so many pretty stark contrast with, right? It's like, you know, it, and obviously this is not every Democrat, right? There are plenty of wonderful Democrats, many of whom I've voted for many times over in my life, but, like, there, it is a wide party, it is a big tent party, and part of that tent is increasingly the, the Bloomberg-centrist kind of lane of the party. And for newcomers to the party, I'm curious, like, what is what is the value in deciding to run as a Democrat rather than as a, a third party or as an independent in general? Yeah, so... Uh, and I'll tell you this: that if this was any other country uh, that allowed more than two part than the two party system that we have right now, Greg Nixon, I would not be in the same party. <laughs> I was, I was like as a, as a young teen, I was, I was an independent myself, and mm-hmm. I only switched over to Democrat because of people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Costa Cortez. Um, you know, and coming from New York, New York is eighty percent Democrat. New York Times specifically is 80, also 80, 85% Democrat. So in order for anyone to win the seat, you have to be Democrat. Um, so if I, you know, no matter, if I win the primary come June or June 23rd, if I win this primary, mm. then I am looking to win in November because the amount of Republicans that are here are, is just non-existent. Mm. Uh, so if, you win, if I win the primary, I'll win the general. And, you know, that's essentially what, that's what, that's essentially what, why it matters, what it takes. But I'm, I'm someone, again, who I don't necessarily believe in a two-party system and that it really is functional. 
but because my values do mostly align with the Democratic Party, and I think that as Democrats, whatever that means, um, we can be better, you know, it, mm-hmm. you know especially against what we have in office right now um, with Donald Trump. You know, we could be doing so much better, but I don't think that even trying to going back to what was normal hasn't worked either. You know, like people are so desperate to get Trump out of office um, that most people are like, all right, well, we'll settle with Joe Biden, the establishment. He was, you know, a balanced secondhand person. Um, and people are okay with that. But if I'm really looking at the whole picture that, you know, policy-wise, there really isn't much of a difference between uh, two establishment people of, you know, at the federal level. So what I want to do is just, like, not only, like, I don't want to go back to things that was normal. I want to make sure things are revolutionary, right? Making sure that working class people are really represented. And right now, I think both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are doing a terrible job at that. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I find very troubling about, like, post-16 American life is that it's very clear to me that 2016 was the change election of our generation and that people really wanted just something different and something, to borrow the term, revolutionary. And so when the Democrats kind of refused to give the public that and tried to kind of steer the ship back to more of the same and kind of keep it on the trajectory, obviously, like, the, the public revolt to that was was to Trump. And part of the issue now is, like you said, there there isn't much difference between you know, two establishment figures, but what you have on the right isn't an establishment figure. You know what I mean? Like, Donald Trump is as far from, like, whatever we determined an establishment Republican to be five years ago as you could have been at this point, right? And so it's like, it's it's not like they're going back in time. It's not like it's like, you know, we're going to try and trot out the old Democratic establishment to take on the old Republican establishment. It's that we're going to trot out, like, the 2008 Democratic establishment to take on, like, the 2020 fucking shit posting, okay. you know, internet yeah. worldview of like 4chan and Reddit that has like, a, you know, amassed into, you know, a global campaign of misinformation and terror. You know what I mean? Like you can't, yeah. you simply just can't yeah. go backwards to take on an enemy of that magnitude. And that's the part I find frustrating. I mean, uh, the flip yeah. side of that obviously is that like, you know, Bernie was in the best position anyone's ever been to, uh, to lead a revolution and, you know, be able to kind of unite the party under a revolutionary banner. And I, I find like, he spent a lot of time making enemies where, like, he didn't need to make friends. He just needed to not piss people off. And I said this a lot about Beto's campaign early on. Obviously, his petered out a lot sooner. Uh, but so much of his campaign was spent just telling people, like, who he wasn't going to talk to and what press he wasn't going to do and, like, what things he wasn't going to compromise on. And, like, that sounds great to your base, like, right up until you hit the ceiling of your base. <laughs> you know what I mean? But right. to, to win a national election, you're going to need more than that base. Like like you said, you can you can yeah. win in New York 5 with just Democrats. There's only, you know, 12% of the district is Republican. So it's like you win a Democratic yeah. primary there you'll be fine. Uh, but that, right. that doesn't work on a national scale, obviously. Right. So I, I agree. I, I agree. I worry, I worry about our, our movement in Massey, but I, I still have some faith. I, uh, I want to move yeah. here to a, a couple lighter-hearted questions before before we get you out of here. Uh, one of the things I, I like to ask people, obviously, we talked about a lot about some of the big ideas you have. You, you were talking federal housing guarantees, nationalizing public transit, a Green New Deal that touches everything, you know, from how we get our energy sources to food access, right? Like, these are huge ideas. What is the tiniest thing you want to do in office? Like, is there, like, you know, first day in office you're going to hang this painting or, like, at some point in your two years you want to make sure you visit, like, this thing while you're in the cabin? Like, what is, like, the smallest thing you want to do while you're in office? Man, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, but I kind of want to smoke a blunt <laughs> in my office, but... <laughs> hey, D.C.'s going to legalize weed by the time you get there, baby. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it, but I kind of want to smoke a blunt in my
it is you criminalized there. Hey, criminalized there. So then I'm, I don't I'm, know. I'm with the shits. I won't tell anybody if you don't tell anyone. I'm, I'm pulled up. <laughs> you heard it here uh, first, I, folks. I, if, if we get Sean elected to Congress, we all get to go smoke a blunt in the Capitol. So like, <laughs> you make your own choices about what you want to do. But I know who I'm voting for. <laughs> the uh the other thing i wanted to kind of touch on and i guess this isn't as light but it's something we didn't get a chance to get to uh i saw on your platform that you support removing the jones act it's kind of uh part of the the federal kind of debt relief uh towards puerto rico and how poorly we've traded puerto rico over the past uh, i don't know yeah. forever uh and so forever. Uh, as, as somebody who's not puerto rican but you know it, you know finds himself in that melting pot of brown people right uh how did you kind of like come to the conclusion about removing the jones act as kind of the the go to way to go about that and so what is the jones act and what will removing it do for people who are listening at home and are, are unfamiliar yeah so you know my i've always been a proponent of the jones act just because i'm someone who just believes in deep you know u.s imperialism and colonization has really shaped the way white supremacy has built has been built on the system um and when we look at places in like you know even the middle east or even Africa, or even in Central South America, you know, Puerto Rico still doesn't have its own sovereignty under the U.S. Um, and I think that, one, we need to not only allow people to decide, uh, you know, how they want to be part of the U.S. or be their own independent uh, nation, because they are still an independent nation, mm-hmm. but I think that we need to let the people decide, you know, how they want to be represented. Uh, but in terms of the Jones Act, you know, I, I've always just been... Uh, you know, just growing up, I had a lot of Puerto Rican friends, so, you know, I hear their stories, and just learning about what, you know, the, the you know, what the Jones Act is, is it makes it, you know, unbearable for Puerto Ricans all, on the nation of Puerto Rico to live, especially when we have corporations who are just coming in and are making it um, pretty much almost not, you know, it, it, they make it difficult for any kind of foreign uh, shipment coming in into, uh, into Puerto Rico, into Puerto Rico, unless it's not from the U.S. So, you know, because of the scarcity of food and other items that are not available in Puerto Rico, if it's not coming from Puerto Rico, uh, sorry, if it's not coming from the U.S., then the nation of Puerto Rico cannot accept these items. Um, so I think that makes it difficult, especially with what happened in Hurricane Maria. Uh, you know, Trump and his administration, they kind of just uh, left Puerto Rican uh, out to dry the less the people out there have to drive. Um, and people are still recovering to this day. But, you know, the money wasn't really coming into the nation. The you know, research that are needed to really help them, you know, build their schools and help them be rebuild their jobs uh, was just been non-existent from the government. And we, we've seen it, the corruption that has gone down there in Puerto Rico with, you know, going with the governor. Um, you know, people are starting to really start a revolution, you know, within themselves to not, you know, really accept things that the way you know to be the way they are anymore um so that's the first thing i wanted this is this is a law that's been around since 1920 um you know and i think that the u.s has an obligation to really decolonize puerto rico um you know and make sure that they are able to receive if it's not coming from us then at the very least you know it should, it, it should be coming from anybody throughout the world and they have every right to make any transaction with any other nation 
I, uh, the, the only reason I even know about the Jones Act is because I, I grew up here in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is America's oldest fishing port and one of our oldest Coast Guard ports. So, like, a lot of people around here just happen to know a lot of weird old-timey shit about maritime law. So, I like, mm-hmm. overheard it at oh, yeah. some, some point in my life. And so, that's where I saw it. I was like, oh, I haven't heard that reference in a while. Is that still, like, a thing? And I was like, oh, apparently it yeah. still is. And it still is crippling Puerto Rico's economy. I think another important thing you hit on there is that, like, there's a big push, especially among stateside Democrats, for uh, grouping D.C. statehood and Puerto Rico statehood together. Uh, and those are two very, very different issues where, like, there's a, a very large contingent of Puerto Rico who does not want statehood. They want sovereignty. Uh, and I, I don't know that, like, pushing the statehood movement is, like, a good or a bad thing. Uh, and it seems I, – I, I don't quite know what the correct answer on that is, so I'm always looking for ways that I can, like, be supportive of because sort of the liberation of Puerto Rico without pushing for statehood. Um, this feels like a yeah. good step in that direction where – like if you're a stateside democrat who like thinks that's the solution at least that like this is the way to provide some help and some relief to our our you know brothers and sisters in puerto rico who are you know going through it at the hands of our own government yeah uh the uh the last thing i, I want to ask you about here before we get you out of here and we'll, we'll play random people here in the, the back end uh but it's my my one final corny question i get to ask everybody which is so what was like what was the like the moment where you realized you were really doing this? Where you were like, "Hey, like you know, I've been active in politics. I've done you know some important things in my life. I've served in the military. You know, I, I'm a good older brother. Like you, you kind of obtain all these other identities. But now you are like you know you are running for Congress. Like you are about to hopefully be like a national leader for our country. Could you have like envisioned this at any point previously for you? And like, what was like the moment Never where that like that. sank in where you're like, you know, my 28 year old self is about to go try and be like real, real important. <laughs> yeah. I think even early on in the, like I never really imagined myself running for office. I thought, you know, I even, you know, before this, I, someone who loved playing sports and I was, you know, I was even after not achieving my football dreams, I wanted to play rugby and I had aspirations of playing rugby overseas. I uh, kind of missed out on the opportunity to play in England for a little bit. Um, and it was kind of like a twist of fate. It was a silver lining where I tore my meniscus. I missed the 2017 rugby season. But then that's how I got involved in, you know, legis- in the legislation, state legislation in Albany. And that kind of like led me to my past here today. But I never really thought about actually running for office. Um, and even early on in the campaign, it still didn't hit me for a while. You know, I guess I'm kind of going to imposter syndrome <laughs> where I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm someone who doesn't, to be honest, I don't like doing social media a lot. I don't really like to be in a spotlight. That's just, uh, it's not my forte. Um, I like to keep things quiet, but, you know, I, I think that um, if we really do want to make the impact that we, you know, we really want to make, then we have to be that so people, other people can see that. And uh, I needed some convincing through friends and um, even going through, like, uh, therapy, you know, kind of, like, needed to find that self-confidence to actually get to where I am today. And it took a long time, even throughout the campaign, to uh, be in the position that I am today. But honestly, like, it kind of just hit me recently, maybe about, like, um, a couple months ago. And that's when it really hit me when, uh, when Meeks decided to endorse Bloomberg. I, I, I guess that kind of lit a fire into my ass. Uh, you know, telling me that this is the right thing to do because um, that was like the final straw to me because now it just became really, really personal after that. And that um, hearing stories, even through our social media, hearing so many sentimental stories about others who were stopped with risk, who were wrongly convicted through this unjust criminal justice system, um, you know, it shows that, um, you know, that I'm with the people and people are with me and, and that we're going to do this. 
Well, I, for one, am certainly very, uh, very thankful that you chose Congress over concussions. Uh, and I, I think it's, <laughs> it's going to be a good thing for both your body, your brain, and the rest of our country. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up and leave it there. We'll come back and we'll play random people on the other side. But uh, thank you so much for, for you know, sharing so much of your story with me. And uh, I, I wish you all the best, obviously, uh, moving forward in the race. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Okay. We'll be right back after this. Who the fuck are these people? Shut up. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Internet. Are you ready? It's time for random people. Alright, we are back and it is time for America's favorite podcast segment. It is Random People, my favorite thing to do on this show. The way this works, as you will probably know out at home from listening to this previously, but our friend Sean here does not, I have a list of 100 people here in front of me. Sean is going to give me three numbers, one through 100. I'm going to give him three people and he's going to give me three things about those people. After he does that, I'm going to get one follow-up question and then we'll send him packing on his way to go do way more important things like delivery of groceries to elder people and turning people's lights on and all sorts of things that important heroes do that I don't. Uh, so without much further ado, Sean, what are your three numbers? My three numbers are 26. Okay. Uh, 49. 49. All right. And eighty ninety nine. Ninety nine. All right. We'll start from the bottom because that's probably the easiest. Uh, this is a problem when people pick high numbers, man. I gotta scroll one more. That's a long list. All right, 99. All right, 30 seconds on the clock here. You're gonna tell me the first three things that pop into your head during this quarantine episode about kids. About who? About kids. Oh, about kids. Oh, man. About kids. Agnostic. Uh, <laughs> fun. Uh, that's that's fun, and just uh, the future, okay. the future. That's solid. That's solid. We'll scroll back up here to forty nine. Should bear with me. Forty nine. There we go. Uh, ooh, this is a good one. Uh, I I feel like for you, obviously, New Yorkers. Give me the first three things that pop in your head about New Yorkers. <laughs> uh, busy, fast paced. Um, and loud. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that's a, a pretty generic answer for New York, but I'll take it. Busy, busy, that's fast, true. and loud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's accurate. There's a reason it's a cliche. Uh, all right, and last one, I'll throw a curveball at you at number 26 is Gryffindors. Gryffindors, so, oh, wow. Uh, I'm a Slytherin, so. Oh, okay. Gryffindors. Gryffindors are smart, courageous, um, and brave. Right answers, because you're speaking to a Gryffindor, so you're, you're in good company. <laughs> I, I, was a, I was a Slytherin when I first tested when I was 11, and I'm a Gryffindor now. I don't know what that says about me. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of New York's loudness, I guess we got, we got some live sirens, too. Uh, oh, yeah, all the time. 
So I, I, I get my three follow-up questions here. I guess I will, I will start with kids. Uh, you mentioned they're obnoxious and they're fun and they're part of the future. Are they part of your future? Do you want kids? Do you want more obnoxious things in your life? Or are you having enough fun running for Congress <laughs> and trying to run the world? Eventually. I, I do want kids eventually when the time is right, but uh, not anywhere close right now. <laughs> Please tell my girlfriend that because you're only a year younger than me, so if you're nowhere close, then you got to give me some time, right? Oh, I got you, man. I got you. <laughs> uh, secondly, I will move on to New Yorkers. As I mentioned, you said busy, fast, and loud. So I, as a as a mostly lifelong New Yorker, obviously you had some time out in Jersey, you had some time out in Detroit, but you you were clearly a New Yorker at heart. How do you kind of like find your quiet and your calm like in the city? Because that's the one reason I could never live in New York City is like I can't find that sense of like home and peace. So how do you do that? I find it in my shower. <laughs> that's the only that's the only time of peace I ever get uh, because it's just uh, I guess it's just my my way of just like getting some downtime to really think out loud and de stress. So anywhere else, once you step out of the apartment, uh, there's no quiet in New York City. But I love it though. At the same time, I love it. You kind of need it. Uh, but the shower is the only place I find peace. I, I can definitely relate to that. I, I've never slept so poorly as the nights I sleep in New York City. That's a fact. <laughs> if I lived there, I would definitely need to develop an alcohol addiction because there's no way I'd be getting to sleep. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and finally, obviously, we, we had Gryffindors. And you, I'm proud of you because I've had a, a couple of people on this show where, like, kindly, like I said to you off air, like, I'll edit stuff out if it makes you look bad. And I've definitely had to re-record random people with a few people whose Harry Potter knowledge was not up to par for me. So I appreciate your, your quality <laughs> answers. Who is your favorite Harry Potter character in, the, in like, the whole oh, Harry Potter universe? Who is your person? My favorite Harry Potter character would probably have to be uh, his name is now top of my head. Uh, Harry's uncle. Oh, Sirius Black? Uh, well, Sirius Black. Definitely hands down favorite character. All right, and no, that's now, all just, Yeah, hands down. He was just, I guess he was the most um, human, you know, in a way. You know, <laughs> he was, I guess, you know, uh, someone who was arrested and, you know, escaped Azkaban. Uh, he was, at the end of the day, just, a, you know, a gold-hearted person who was Harry's guardian angel, you know, Um so he was just a good person at heart, and I think that he was kind of just the the rock, but also like uh, serious though, also like serious black. Um, you know, after after knowing what happened in the end, it's like ah, oh, heartbreaking. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's part of the like the closure of his loop is what really like breaks your heart about it, but also makes him like probably the most memorable character of the series, especially as like, yeah. an older person. Like once you get past the age of like being relatable to the kids, you're like, oh, like the trouble flawed adult who like has the pure heart and is trying to do the right thing. I I could be that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I. The, the final question I usually wrap here with is, is by asking people, you know, obviously we, we covered some of them. We covered the kids. We covered the New Yorkers. We covered the, the Gryffindors. But who else, uh, who else in the ether are you hoping hears this story and kind of hears this episode and has a chance to kind of get to know a little bit more about you and about the campaign, about, you know, what you're, what you're working on bringing to America? Sorry, what was the first part of the question? So, uh, like, who, who, is, uh, who are you hoping has a chance to hear this and who are you hoping this uh, gets out to? Oh, man, you know... I am someone who is uh, big on, you know, for me, I, I don't want to do this forever. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, in term limits. So 
I don't, I don't expect myself doing this for 10, 20 plus years, but I want to make sure that, you know, the community set up for the next generation. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, in, in cultural and the arts and just the young people really taking action to their own hands. So I really want to make politics just cool, you know? <laughs> so anyone who's just like into visual arts and, um, you know, anything like that, music, I, I want them to know that this is politics, you know, is, is theirs just as much as anybody else's. So just your everyday people, young people like this, this is our time and we could really uh, turn this into something that has never been done before. So it doesn't have to be boring. Well, New Yorkers, kids, Gryffindors, young people, creative people, if you listen to the last uh, eight episodes or so of this podcast, they were all with creative people, ranging from graphic artists to broadcasters to rappers to musicians and everyone in between. Uh, so if any of the people you liked on there are listening, uh, please go check out Sean's campaign. Uh, Sean, where can they find you? Where's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you? Check out the campaign. Check out what you're up to. Yeah, sure. So I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find me at S-H-A-N-I-Y-A-T-2020, so Sean.2020. And you can also visit our website at www.sean2020.com. All right, and that's Sean, S-H-A-N, 2020.com. Uh, check him out. His whole policy platform is there, uh, including some more in-depth stuff about the Jones Act stuff that we talked about here, the Green New Deal stuff that we talked about here, uh, some of the public transit stuff that we talked about here that is all right on the website. So if you're looking for some more in-depth information and you want to get a sense of uh, kind of what the official rank is on it, not just the, uh, the shoot and the shit version, uh, feel free to check out the website and get that. Uh, thanks again for doing this, man. This was fucking awesome, and it was really good uh, to yeah. kind of have a chance to put voice to, to young politicians trying to change our country. So I really appreciate you getting out there and doing that, and uh, thanks for thanks for being a part of it. Yeah, appreciate your time. Absolutely. Till next time, uh, he is going to try and get this right. Shanyat Chowdhury? Yeah. Bang, bang, let's go. I am Mitch Gaines, and we are all those people. I'll let you next time. Those people are wrong. Most people are right. Thank you for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. Really hope you tune in for the rest of this season, including going back and checking out some of our episodes from Volume 1 of this season, focusing on political people, and in particular Democrats who are running for Congress. Got a few quick housekeeping notes here for you. If you listened to this episode and you really enjoyed it, please, please, please rate and review the show wherever it is that you listen. Really helps other people find the show, and that's pretty essential to us being able to do a second season. Uh, if you happen to be an Apple or a Podchaser user, those places in particular really help drive our listenership. So if you could, definitely leave us a rating or a review there. If you really love the episode, or you just want to support the show in general, there are a number of ways that you can do just that now. 
you can head on over to anchor.com slash those people slash support to make a recurring monthly donation to help keep our little show going. You can also log on to mitchgains.com slash store where you can buy one of our creative people t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, or anything else that you happen to find in the store that catches your eye. And even if you hated the episode, you might want to take a look there because we have some pretty cool shit. Also, if you just want to buy me a drink or something next time I'm in your city, that's cool with me too. If you have feedback for the show, I'm also all ears. My Twitter DMs are always open, and you can also email me at mitchgaines at gmail.com. If you prefer speaking to writing, obviously I do, that's why I have a podcast, you can leave us a voice message at the link in the show notes here. Your feedback, your questions, and your opinions may be used in a future episode, just be noted of that. Special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of these episodes there on location, including our interviews here with Anjan, Jackie, and a bunch more in this particular volume. I also want to give a thank you to Amy Bazoon Artea, as well as the Justice Boys, for our outro and our intro music, respectively. Both of those songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post them links in the show notes if you want to find out where to find them. Lastly, most specially, a thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Shetland, without whom, as I always say, and I mean this quite literally each and every time, none of this would be possible. And also a final thank you to those people out there who've supported this project from its earliest days, including some of our previous guests like Brianna Wu and Ken Mejia Beal, and friends of the show, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Shelbo the God, and countless others that I'm missing. I'm Mitch Gaines, and I appreciate you, whoever you are out there, for listening to this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people. See you next week.